This podcast proudly brought to you by Moss Shot Shells. Old school is back in season. Experience superior shells when you go with Boss Shot Shells. Their premium, non-toxic bismuth shells knock birds down so hard that the old guys might just think they're shooting lead again. Make sure you check out Boss Shot Shells for your next purchase of shotgun shells. Hey guys, I'm Jordan Fromer. I believe in hunting hard, hunting smart, and having a fun time while doing it. And shooting limits? Well, that's just the icing on the cake. I revel in the journey just as much as the successes it brings. From ducks to dogs to decoys and guns, we'll be talking tactics, strategies, and what it takes to get the job done. Load up and take aim. This is the Duck Gun Podcast. What's going on, folks? Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Duck Gun Podcast. On this week's episode, we're joined by John Devney of Delta Waterfowl, and he has been a big part of Delta Waterfowl for a long time. He's full of great information, great duck hunting knowledge, and so it was awesome just to pick his mind and hear all the stuff he's got going on, all the stuff that Delta Waterfowl has done now, the future, and um, in the past. So without further ado, a quick word from our partners, and we'll jump right into the podcast. Hi, this is Killian Bailey from Bailey's Game Calls. I'm here to tell you about our duck, goose, and wood duck calls. We use 3D printing technology to revolutionize the industry. This new technology allows us to create calls with the same sound as wood, acrylic, or anything in between that's at a fraction of the price. Make sure to check out baileysgamecalls.com for your next game call. Next, we'd like to give a big thanks to our partners at White Rock Decoys. Be a nomad and get out further with their system of wind socks and silhouettes. Use discount code DUCKGUNPOD at checkout for 10% off your next order at whiterockdecoys.com. What's going on, folks? I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles. Got my co-host alongside me, Elliot, from Freelance Duck Hunting. And our guest tonight is John from Delta Waterfowl. How are you doing tonight, John? Good, guys. How are you? Oh, doing great. Really excited to have you on tonight. Um, I went to my first Delta Waterfowl event um, this past weekend or the weekend before, and it got me really intrigued about Delta. So we've got you lined up. We've got uh, Garrett, the Kansas, Missouri regional guy lined up. Really excited to have you on tonight. Well, glad, glad to do it. Uh, glad to be talking about something other than cold and snow. It's been a long winter, so <laughs> I'm happy to talk about ducks and duck hunting for a little bit. Awesome. Sounds great. So uh, let's just go on and start from the beginning. Let us know kind of a little bit about who you are and what you got going on. Well, guys, I've been a uh, um, longtime duck hunter, grew up in Minnesota, um, you know, probably like a lot of your listeners, a guy that got passionate about duck hunting when I was four years old. My dad took me when I was four, told me not to step in cow pies and threw a burlap sack over me and told me to be quiet. And that sort of my love of fascination with ducks. I grew up just outside of St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, the neighbor kid's father was also a big duck hunter. So as a kid, you know, we had a ragtag, you know, the castaway pair of hip boots and old duck decoys that his father and my father had discarded and painted Coke bottles black and fiddled around with it, learned to blow a duck call. And, and, you know, and that was in a place where kind of a suburban lake where we weren't allowed to shoot, but 
virtually every night from Labor Day um, until it froze. I'd be down there, you know, laying in a couple of makeshift blinds we had learning about ducks. And then shot my first duck in uh, central Minnesota, a juvenile Drake wood duck uh, when I was 12. And it's been kind of an all-consuming passion, not only the duck hunting part of it, but the conservation part of it as well. I, you know, I'm 48 years old, so I kind of came of age as a duck hunter during some pretty dark days for ducks and duck hunting in the late 80s and early 90s with, you know, 30-day seasons, three-bird bag limits, canvas back and redhead closures when things were pretty dire. So I've always had a real interest in making sure ducks are doing well. And then you know, obviously been a passionate waterfall hunter. And, and I moved to Bismarck just a little over 20 years ago, been with Delta now for 20 years. And it's been a pretty wonderful experience to spend my day working for duck, ducks and duck hunters every day. So you were around for the uh, big switch over from lead to steel then, right? Yeah, the I lived through it. Yep. I lived through it in Minnesota where I grew up, obviously. And then much later, we uh, went through it. I spent a lot of time as a kid up until actually up until the fall that I moved to Bismarck to take the job with Delta. I lived through it in Canada as well. So I lived through it kind of twice. I think my first, my first real year of duck hunting was around like 90, 91. It was like the first year that they switched from lead to steel. So everyone around me and all the old guys, boy, they were not happy. (laughs) Yeah. No, well, and and being a kid that primarily grew up diving duck hunting, you know, low performing ammunition on big water shooting bluebills, canvas backs and golden eyes was never was never a great thing. So, yeah, there were lots of challenges in those days, Um, not least amongst them was only having 30 day split seasons and all the rest in very, very small bag limits. Yeah. Awesome. So one thing you kind of mentioned there is uh, you moved out. Uh, the Dakotas and took the job with Delta. So how, how did you end up getting involved with that? Well, it was, it, it, I had been a Delta member for several years. Um, and, you know, I'd read about Delta, heard about Delta. Um, and, but it was an organization that was back in those days was not real well known. Um, and I really, I didn't even, frank, you know, this was well before the internet, obviously, well, well before I knew how to use the internet anyways. And, and so I had never found out a way to send a membership or a check and, and actually found them at Game Fair in Anoka, which is still one of the best sort of big outdoor format shows in the country. Um, had been renewing my membership and actually in uh, August of 1998, I was renewing my membership I had uh, quit my job earlier that spring in the marine business. I was doing some freelance writing, primarily on duck hunting, and and renewed my membership and said I'd be happy to contribute material to the newsletter that Delta was producing at the time. And one of the guys in the booth, who is actually a colleague of mine, Jim Fisher, said, you know, we're kind of looking for a guy to do that sort of thing. Um, Had an interview, phone interview, interview with the chairman of the board of directors came to Bismarck that October for a job interview. Of course, I hunted my way out here and hunted my way back and then uh, uh, moved here on Veterans Day. And my first day of work was November 12th, 1998. So it's, you know, I was a member of the organization, always had a high respect and regard for what Delta represented and 
and turn that interest into a job sort of by very odd coincidence. Oh, that's awesome to be able to do what you're passionate about as a profession. That's great. <laughs> so, so what's a, a day look like in the office of Delta waterfowl? Well, it's pretty varied, right? I mean, you know, I, you know, my role at Delta, I've had a lot of them over the last 20 years, but the last number of years I've been really focused on uh, the public policy part of what we do as an organization, how we represent ducks and duck hunters at different policy forums. So, you know, this time of year, it's very hectic because we have 50 state legislatures doing a lot of stuff, a lot of it not great when it comes to duck hunters. Um, and, you know, we're also right now, the president signed, Congress did a really good job of getting a farm bill done um, last year in the last Congress, the president signed it, so we're working on farm bill implementation. So, you know, my day this time of year is responding to, you know, bad legislation that's emerging almost anywhere in the country to working on farm bill implementation, uh, to working on issues with the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Department of Interior. Um, and as there's a big section in my job description, even after 20 years as other duties as assigned, uh, others duties as assigned. So it's, you know, this time of year, it's really hectic um, with just all the various policy issues. Um, I mean, we're dealing with everything from, you know, municipal county level issues right now in North Carolina, all the way to stuff at Department of Interior. So it's really varied. It's really interesting. And, uh, you know, certainly pretty hectic. But, you know, there's there's a real need for somebody to be watching these issues from soup to nuts, from everything in a municipal, you know, in a municipal building all the way to Washington, D.C. to make sure duck hunters are well, rep ducks and duck hunters are both well represented. So when you say you're responding to the policy, does, does that mean putting out an official statement by Delta? Or are you actually contacting politicians, writing articles? What does that look like? It, it really depends on the issue. Um, you know, uh, you know, an issue came up today. Well, it's been coming up, but took action on today where there uh, there's been a move afoot in the last two legislative sessions to ban a big chunk of the Quinnipiac River in Connecticut. Um, a lot of people won't think about Connecticut is a duck hunting destination, but they've got a great tradition. And there's a lot of people in Connecticut that aren't crazy about guns and hunting, and, and they want to ban one of the most important stretches of public water. So, you know, in that one, we're working with the coalition of partners. Um, in other instances, we're issuing action alerts for our members to get involved. In other instances, we're talking directly with decision makers. It really just depends upon the issue. In other instances, we're coordinating our volunteers to engage in a particular issue. It just really depends and is very issue by issue base, you know, oriented. So uh, you, you talked a little bit about the farm bill. Is that, I've, I think I've heard some, some about that. Is that um, specific to the Dakotas on that one? No, that's, you know, the farm bill is the single largest, a lot of folks wouldn't know this, but the, the farm bill is the single largest investment the American taxpayer makes into conservation on privately owned land. Um, so the implication of a good farm bill or a bad farm bill is really significant for ducks. And when you start talking about duck production in a place like the 
you know, U.S. prairie pothole region, well over 90% of our ducks are going to be produced on private working farms and ranches. So, you know, we have to have a good relationship with agriculture and good policies and programs to encourage folks to be engaged in waterfall conservation. Because if you're a corn farmer in North Dakota or South Dakota, your job is to produce corn. And, and sometimes that can come across purposes or potentially can be perceived to come across purposes with, you know, making money for you and your family. So, yeah, the Farm Bill, I would argue, is probably the single most important uh, policy issue that we work on in most of our in our colleagues in the conservation community, whether you, whether you're talking about Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever, Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. Uh, Nature Conservancy, NWTF, all those organizations are very engaged in the Farm Bill because it just has such an incredible impact. I'll, I'll give you an example. In 2007, when CRP was at its peak, we had about 3.7 million acres of CRP grassland in North Dakota. The cost of the American taxpayer that for that was $120 million a year. Wow. And you think about, you know, Delta Waterfall's got a $10 million operating budget. You know, DU's got a significantly larger, about a $200 million operating budget. But USDA is in a position to make payments to farmers that frankly dwarfs anything else that we can do in conservation. And that's why it's so important to get it right. Um. Where are we at? History of Delta? Yeah, well, I mean, I think a lot of people might be surprised to know that Delta is the oldest duck outfit in North America. It goes all the way back to 1911. But the organization really started to get its footing. A guy by the name of James Ford Bell, who's the guy that James Ford Bell means a lot. Where I grew up in Minnesota because he was a Minnesota guy, Minnesota kid passionate duck hunter, um, he would watch the decline of canvasbacks across the places he hunted in Minnesota and went to the Delta Marsh in Manitoba and, and bought a big, big piece of the marsh and, and figured out that canvasbacks weren't doing great there either. Shortly after uh, he acquired the property, um, he reached out to Aldo Leopold and started a research program that really got started in earnest in 1938 when Al Hochbaum became the first scientific director at Delta. So the organization's been around a long, long time. Not as well known as DU or NWTF or Pheasants Forever because it was primarily uh, it was primarily a science outfit. And what Delta did for the overwhelming majority of its history from you know, the 30s all the way up into the mid 90s was pretty quiet to the average duck hunter. Um, you know, lots and lots of very important research. The, for example, the way we survey ducks, the way the Fish and Wildlife and Canadian Wildlife Service survey ducks every spring to do the spring breeding population inventory, that methodology was developed at Delta in the 40s. Much of what we know about basic breeding duck ecology, Delta learned in, back in the 30s and 40s. So that was really Delta's legacy, but it was a quiet legacy. And it really wasn't until 1990, the early 1990s, uh, going back to our conversation about how grim things were for ducks and duck hunting in that period, that Delta, I think, 
got a little more profile amongst, you know, everyday duck hunters like me. And, and it was over things like how do we deal with low nest success on the prairies and Delta did some pretty cutting edge and, and frankly, a little con fairly controversial work in the early nineties, looking at predator management, increased duck production, uh, looked at hen houses, pioneered a new approach to conserve small wetlands in Prairie Canada. And that was what really sort of got Delta sort of a little bit better known than it was prior. And then, you know, I think a few other things happened a little later in the 1990s. We really started growing. Our, our membership program was just starting to grow when I arrived in 1998. Um, and so we started to talk to the, you know, duck hunters more. And then in, in the early 2000s, I think we had a pretty significant realization that golly gee whiz, you know, there's all this time and attention being spent on ducks, but nobody was really, we, we were concerned that there wasn't nearly enough attention being paid to duck hunting. And, and we've seen at that point, 70% decline in Canadian duck hunters and even U.S. duck hunters in, in the late 1990s, early 2000s were down a th over a third from where they were in the 1970s. So at that point, we started getting involved in the hunting issues. And at that point, we also understood that if we want to conserve habitat on massive scales to help duck populations, we needed to do it through public policy, things like we just talked about with the farm bill. And so I think that's sort of where Delta is today. Uh, we still do really good research. We're active in uh, deploying predator management and hen house out there uh, to increase duck production. Um, we've got a really big and robust waterfowl specific hunter recruitment program that's the biggest in North America. Uh, we pride ourselves of being a voice of a duck hunter in all these policy realms and that sort of rounds out who we are today. Uh, so you, you mentioned Aldo Leopold. Um, so would you consider him kind of one of the forefathers of Delta? Was he that involved in the early process? Well, he was, yeah, I mean, I, he was instrumental. He met with James Ford Bell in the mid thirties and, and James Ford Bell, frankly, was on a track that Leopold wasn't crazy about. He was, James Ford Bell was actually running a hatchery and, and brought Leopold to the Delta Marsh in the mid thirties to figure out how they could raise canvas backs in captivity. And Leopold thought that was a really horrible idea. Leopold was never much for for hatcheries and put and take and convinced convinced Bell at that point to start the, to invest in a research program. And he, he sent his prize graduate student from the University of Wisconsin, a guy by the name of Hans Albert Hochbaum, um, up to Delta. So yeah, Leopold was, you know, a very important contributor, uh, very in the formative stages of the research program. And if you go back and read San Coney Almanac, Hochbaum was the guy uh, that wrote the foreword to San County Almanac. So it shows you the close relationship that Leopold, Hochbaum, and Bell had in sort of the formative years of Delta's research program. That's super cool. Jordan, have you ever have you ever had your hands on that book, San County Almanac? No, I know. Uh, I've heard you talk about it in the past. Yeah, you've got to get your hand on that. Not only is it just amazing piece about conservation, he's got so many like one-liner quips about people that don't hunt and people that live in the city that yeah. it's it is a just a phenomenal phenomenal book the fact Sweet. that it isn't required reading all across the united states is a crime 
Yeah, absolutely. It's just, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I, I, I got a copy that was handed down to me by my father and that thing is barely holding on for dear life. I've, I've got all these quotes in it and that thing just, it's going to just disintegrate at any moment. It's quite, well, funny. I'll take a look and see if I can find it on audible or something. <laughs> I bet you, yeah. And if not, I bet you can purchase that on Amazon pretty cheap. I'm, I bet it doesn't go for that much. Sweet. But it's great work. So we kind of talked about um, what Delta is doing to improve waterfowling. I know sometimes the the perception that I've kind of heard of Delta is that the focus is more on the um, controlling predators, um, and that's kind of the number one um, piece of importance for Delta. Would you think that's accurate, or is that a misperception? I, you know, I mean, you know, Delta's been a big advocate for predator management. I. You know, the thing about it is I think it's a bit of a mischaracterization. Um, you know, if you look at the prairie pothole region, if we don't have small wetlands to attract breeding ducks, there's no there's no ducks to trap to benefit. There's no benefit of trapping because there aren't any ducks there. So nobody at Delta has ever misunderstood the need to, to conserve and enhance habitat. Um, and a lot of the work we do in the farm bill, frankly, is focused on conserving those really small, vulnerable wetlands that drive the duck factory. We just believe that, you know, in this day and age, and listen, it's it's hard to produce it. It's hard for ducks out there in today's landscape. Uh, the landscape's been very radically changed from where it was 150 years ago, uh, and and it's appropriately changed. I mean. We've got, you know, pretty intensive agriculture because some of this some of this land is some of the most productive agricultural land in the country. Uh, what's not in sort of annual cultivation is used for hanging grazing to feed livestock. And, you know, the world needs Cheerios and the world needs hamburgers. And, and, and frankly, it's probably better that we produce. It's certainly better for us to produce that uh, than it is to buy it, to import it. And so, but you know, all that all that production has come at some consequence. Duck production, we've lost a heck of a lot of wetlands. Um, continue to lose a heck of a lot of wetlands, especially in places like Prairie Canada. And we've got a lot less nesting cover. And and what that means from a duck production perspective is, over big chunks of the Prairie Pothole region, nest success is under ten percent. And you know, what we've done with predator management is demonstrate that if you invest in that treatment, which is very cost effective, you can double or triple nest success very easily. And it, it's certainly not the panacea to secure the future duck populations forever. But, you know, we think a modest investment in that is a very good complement to all the rest of the habitat conservation work that's going on, the, going on across the prairies. I didn't realize it was less than 10%. I, I, I didn't realize it was that low for nesting success. Yeah. And in lots of places, it's way below that. Wow. Um, you know, Minnedosa, Manitoba, which is a key area in southwestern Manitoba, where Delta did a lot of its early research, it's, it's not uncommon. Uh, frankly, it's common for it's not uncommon for nest success to get between five and 10%. It's often, oftentimes under 5%. So, you know, as as habitat has decreased, as nesting cover has decreased, as predator populations have changed and moved, um, ducks have been 
you know, kind of caught in the crossfire of all that. And, and if there's not a lot of nesting cover, deck nest success is pretty damn low. So what percent of that, of the, um, I don't know the proper terminology, um, of, of nesting success is due to predators, a huge portion. Oh, overwhelming majority better than 90%. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So with that statistic, is that, um, they're complete, I guess I don't know the correct terminology as well, but I know when ducks fell to nest, they'll attempt again. So is that, uh, just like, I guess break that down for us. That yeah. So if, if we look at the things that really matter to duck populations, some really good research that came out of work that Ducks Unlimited Canada did in the 1990s, sort of tried to tease out which of these vital rates are most important. Nest success comes out number one. And it counts for about 43% of the annual change in mid-continent mallard populations. We can transfer that to most prairie ducks. So that's number one. Uh, duckling survival, the duckling that is hatched and survives, survives to fledge is the next most important in the number of females that survive during the nesting season. Because remember that female sitting on those eggs for, you know, 10 days to lay a clutch. She lays an egg a day for 10 days and then sits on that clutch from 27 to 30 some days. So she's got to sit there and guard those eggs. So it's a high mortality period for females. So, yeah, I mean, so nest success is number one. And nest success means whether this particular nest hatches or fails. Now, when it's really wet and ducks can re-nest, they have access to temporary, wet, temporary and seasonal wetlands. They can go back and eat more invertebrates and lay another clutch. The cumulative, the cumulative uh, of all her nests over the years referred to as hen success. Um, and hen success is really important because ducks, as you point out, ducks do not re-nest, but they almost only re-nest when it's really wet. Ducks do not re-nest when it's dry to average. They just, they aren't willing to put that investment in when conditions are sort of below par. So is that percentage then greater than 10 if you include the renesting or, I mean, still it's a, a staggering statistic. But. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you get, you know, you get into a situation where you have a wet year, a hen mallard may nest five times. Right. And so just by sheer mathematical chance, <laughs> when you nest five times, you're more likely to be successful. And that's, that's why we have our, you know, our very best years of duck production when conditions are really wet because a we get ducks on the prairies where they're most productive b females re-nest like crazy even despite uh low nest success and the third element that's really important is ducklings survive at a much higher rate when the prairies are wet than when they're dry so those are the years where we have you know sort of super fall flights of ducks you know years like 2010 2011 2012 2013 where we had abundant water on the prairies lots of breeding ducks and lots of stuff going right so kind of on a, a similar vein to that um kind of a hot button topic but as far as hunters go and hunting um would you say there's any benefit to hunters only targeting uh drakes opposed to hens or is it you know 
there's no benefit beyond just sticking to the regulations that are put out every season. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, one of the things that attracted to me, again, remember, I'm kind of a kid of the Duck Depression in the late 1990s or late 1980s. And, you know, I grew up in Minnesota where we believed that, you know, harvest was additive and you should be pretty conservative about harvest. And Delta had a program called Voluntary Restraint that it initiated back in the late 80s and early 90s to focus harvest of drakes. The challenge is it's really hard to determine that it really has a benefit. Um, the, the challenge is um, duck hunters take a relatively small portion of the ducks every year. Remember, you know, we just talked about that research that DU Canada did and showed what drives duck populations. Only 9% is winter mortality, and that includes hunting mortality. So, so what we kill as hunters for most duck species is is pretty inconsequential. Now, that's when populations are high and the prairies are wet and everything's going well, and that's for most duck species. Harvest is probably more additive on a duck like canvasbacks or eiders. Um, we know harvest is can be additive on goose populations, um, but generally I think that what the science will tell you is it's pretty hard to determine that that's had providing any benefit to populations. Now, my sort of take on that is, you know, I've had the benefit of shooting ducks for a long time. I'm, you know, the world probably doesn't me need me shooting a hen mallard <laughs> to shoot, but, you know, I'm certainly not going to get on a guy that, you know, is out with his son on a Saturday morning, hasn't hunted in two weeks and wants to have a duck dinner. I don't, I don't think we should be in a position where we're chastising that guy. Well, that 9% for, um, that, that you quoted for the number of ducks that are died based on, you know, to, to hunters, that's such a hard number to put my head around. Cause now we're talking the adult ducks that are, that are actually migrating, right? Yeah. So, well, remember it's, it's kind of a tricky figure. What that 9% represents is not what we actually kill in a season. It's what that kill represents in changing the population from one year to the next. Okay. And so when you look at, you know, if you looked at harvest rates for adult male mallards in the Mississippi flyway, your harvest rate is around 12%. Okay. So based on the banded sample, we, we estimate that we shoot around 12% for male mallards. And of, so of the population, what's that? A 12% of the population. Correct. Correct. Okay, I was thinking it was 12, like 9% of the deaths, but it's of the total population. Right. That's right. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot more sense. Hmm. So kind of. I guess jumping from there, uh, what is your current opinion of the bag limits that they've set for the Atlantic Flyway? Well, it's a, it's a complicated issue, guys. And first of all, let's talk about the good. Um, you know, the both the the Atlantic Flyway states and the Fish and Wildlife Service deserve a lot of credit um, for changing the way we manage duck harvest in the Atlantic flyway. Um, you know, folks probably don't think about this very often, but if you look at the way the Atlantic flyway, Mississippi flyway, central flyway and Pacific flyway 
set duck regulations, not mallard regulations, duck regulations. It's based on mallard models. Um, and in sort of light of the sort of long-term decline of eastern mallards, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Flyway a number of years ago initiated a process called the multi-stock approach, which would sort of break them out of using mallards as the is the sole species to make decisions because unlike the Mississippi and central and even the Pacific, the mallard, while it's really important in places in the Atlantic flyway, isn't as dominant in duck hunters bags in the Atlantic flyway as mallards would be in the Mississippi flyway. And so they, and the other thing about it is ducks that are shot in the Atlantic flyway, sort of originated out of a variety of different habitats, whereas ducks in the Mississippi and Central and into a pretty significant measure of the Pacific are primarily coming from, well, especially the Mississippi and Central are coming from prairie breeding grounds. And what's good for a mallard is good for a gadwall, which is good for a pintail, which is good for a blue-winged teal. And But in the East, they're shooting a smorgasbord of ducks um, they originate from a bunch of different places in a bunch of different habitats. So that multi-stock approach was a way to sort of have the general duck season itself be reflective of what they shoot and where those birds come from. And, and what that really did is got duck hunters out of a jam because, you know, um, while these mallards have been declining in the east, there was a very real risk of closed duck seasons if they stayed sticking to a mallard-centric harvest management approach. So that's the good news is the service, but really with the leadership coming from the states, uh, went to this multi-stock model. And that, I think, is I think everybody's pretty confident that's going to provide for a 60-day and six-duck bag limit the overwhelming majority of the seasons. Now... When we get to the mallard issue, um, you know, first let's establish the facts. I mean, mallards have declined in the east. There's no doubt about that. You know, I, how long how long has the decline been going on? Well, if you look if you look at I, I went just I knew this was going to be a topic, so I went and checked some of the population data. Um, in 1999, there were 880,000 mallards in the Northeast U.S. survey area. Last year was 482,000. Mm, wow. So, you know, that's a period of 20 years, uh, just a little bit better than half, right? So that decline's been going on for quite some time. Um, and, and it's a very interesting issue because generally uh, that eastern population is broke up into two sort of subpopulations, one being the northeastern United States, and then there are some mallards in, the, in eastern Canada. But what really drives the population is those northeastern United States mallards. And they've been in decline while the eastern Canada population has been stable to maybe slightly increasing. And what makes it really hard is when you start looking at the data that we have on that population, we see the population declining in our surveys or not our surveys, Fish and Wildlife Service, Canadian Wildlife Service, and state breeding surveys, you can see the decline. 
you can see it's a fairly significant decline. But the problem is we don't see any evidence in the age ratio data that tells us the production of juveniles is declining. And we also don't see any indication through the banded sample that survival is decreasing or mortality is increasing. Now, if we were to look at the pintail data, you know, which is another duck that's not doing great, um, it's pretty easy to understand why pintails are declining because the reproductive output has gone way down over the last 30, 40, 50 years uh, because they've lost habitat in Prairie Canada and they have, have dismally low nest success and most of the ponds they need are gone, they're drained. And so it's easy to understand why pintails are declined, but we really have no real good idea or understanding of what's happened with these eastern mallards, which creates a very, very hard challenge. Hmm. So there's, uh, what, what's the number one, there's got to be some theories as to why the population is declining. What, what's, are there any possible theories at all that are provided? You know, I, I mean, yeah, I don't know if anybody sort of, um, sort of, identified the smoking gun. Um, I think what a lot of people believe is there may be something in our data set that's not right. Hmm. Um, you know, when you, I mean, this goes back to kindergarten, right? One of these things doesn't belong here. Um, you can't have declining populations with stable, stable survival and stable recruitment. It can't, doesn't mathematically work. So the, I think one of the things that the service the states and we're engaging in now is try to understand, test some of those assumptions and some of those theories to see if there's a place where our data is weak. Um, you know, the, the challenge with counting ducks in the Eastern survey area, counting mallards in the East, in, especially in the Northeast plot survey area versus where I live in North Dakota is ducks distribute very differently. I can take you to a place in southeastern North Dakota this year, that's probably going to have pretty good water conditions. It's got incredible wetland density. It'll hold 100, 120 breeding ducks per square mile. Wow. And 20 to 25 of those will be mallards. Now, if we go to the east, so when you're, when you're surveying ducks, which we do on sort of an air ground sort of approach, they fly airplanes, they count ducks, they count ponds, they have ground crews follow up along it. And, and they're flying in the prairie. It's pretty damn open, right? And so the ability to assess populations there, I think, is probably a heck of a lot easier than it is in a forested environment where you're dense. I mean, there is not a place in the east that has, I, I would hazard a guess, don't quote me on this. Well, you can quote me, but I may be wrong. I bet you there's not many places in the northeast plot area that have five or 10 breeding pairs of mallards per square mile. So if, if we've had habitat change and ducks are responding to that, it can introduce all sorts of variability into our, into our, um, into our spring surveys. One of the other things that was noted as a potential uh, that could potentially affect it pretty significantly is um, you know, they've had a series of warmer springs out there. Springs have become sort of earlier and earlier over the last 15 to 20 years. Uh, that may mean that female mallards are nesting earlier. 
that may mean our ability to catch them in the surveys is we're surveying at the same time frame we did, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, you know, maybe we're not capturing those females. And another thing is with Eastern mallards is we didn't start counting them in a really technically rigorous way until 1991. And you know, you asked how long the decline's been happening. It's a 20 year, it's a long decline, it's a significant decline, but we know there were no mallards in the East when Christopher Columbus got here. It was black duck country. And so, you know, we don't know what we're really measuring from because unlike the prairies where we've got data going back to 1955, we don't have that for the East. So, um, you know, we it may look like a huge precipitous decline, but if we had 20 or 30 years more data, we might have known that that 880,000 uh, mallard breeding population in the Northeast survey area was the anomaly, and 482,000 is the long-term average, but we don't know that. Wow, hmm. that's, that's interesting. Interesting stuff for sure. So what what caused the mallards? You said there wasn't mallards; it's just black ducks. Um, hundred couple hundreds of years ago, is it just farming practices that brought mallards to the area, or uh, had to be agriculture? I would think. Well, no, I think it's just. I mean, mallards are the great great white rat, of the duck world, right? I mean, they've been going through range expansion all the time, and you know, I think. You know, mallards are mallards are have a very sort of flexible strategy. Uh, they can eat all sorts of stuff. I mean, you know, the guys in Arkansas talk about them eating acorns. We know they eat moist soil plants. We know they feed in dry cornfields. And and hell, there's mallards right here in North Dakota. It's you know going to be 20 below zero tonight. And I guarantee you, there's a few mallards sitting below the Garrison Dam eating smelt. <laughs> so. <laughs> So mallards have great adaptability, and and they they move their range eastward based on that adaptability. Um, and yeah, I mean, as a guy when I first got to Delta in the late 1990s, I mean, I heard duck biologists say out loud, "We should kill every mallard in the east because they're hybridizing the black duck population out of existence." Have they been tracking the um, hunter harvest of mallards to, to gauge whether people are shooting more or less of them? The, the, the best, yeah, the mallard harvest in the east is sort of up and down like it is everywhere else. But, you know, the banding, you know, assuming our banding data is right, it doesn't look like the harvest rate is any different than it was when populations were high back in the late 1990s. But the challenge is, if you're the Fish and Wildlife Service, you establish a population objective. And the problem is, if you're not managing to that population objective, somebody can sue you and shut down duck seasons. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this decline compelled people to act based on their sort of legal responsibility. Fish and Wildlife Service has migratory bird treaty authority to manage populations for abundance. And, you know, I think they're scared to death about being sued by the Humane Society of the United States like they were back in the 1990s over black ducks, um, where, the, where, the, where HSUS asserted they did not have the biological foundation uh, 
in a in a position where they could justify having a black duck season, which is actually interestingly enough why we have an eastern duck survey now was primarily to count black ducks to deal with that with that lawsuit from the humane society so the um the bag limit for mallards this past season was four mallards two of which could be hens is that correct correct and and has the one for this coming season is it set in stone now i know there's been a lot of talk about it yes it was set in stone uh, I was actually in Plymouth, Massachusetts at the Atlantic Flyway meeting uh, last September. Uh, they did go to two mallards, but what they did was uh, they did drop back to one female. So uh, it, the bag limit for the 1920 duck season will be no more six ducks, 60 days based on that new multi-stock modeling approach uh, with no more than two mallards of which no more than one of those can be a female. Hmm. So uh, kind of jumping topics here a little bit, uh, wanted to kind of touch on something else, kind of talking about hitting on something you mentioned earlier. Uh, you said that springs are coming earlier and that kind of stuff. Is there any talk about moving season dates at all as far as the yeah, hunting well, dates go? Actually, actually, the the Fish and Wildlife Service actually did it uh, this past fall. Um, they basically the framework historically was up until the '90s was the Sunday closest to January 15th, and there was a move made by a guy by the name of Senator Trent Lott from Mississippi. We had a lot of constituents that wanted to shoot later than that. Um, actually held up the appointment of a director uh, appointment of a director of the fish and wildlife service over this issue and got seasons moved back to the sunday closest to january 31st um and then the fish and wildlife service there was a number of states and a number of flyways that were interested in having it just be a fixed january 31st um so that was that move was made by the Fish and Wildlife Service last October, and then it was actually passed his uh, a bill in this big S forty seven that passed the House yesterday, which is a really big comprehensive conservation piece of conservation legislation, really good for sportsmen and conservation. And there was a bill that was authored by uh, Senator from Mississippi, Cindy Hyde Smith, that that would put that in statute so that January 31st will be the day uh, that duck seasons close. There's not much, there's not much appetite. And there's certainly appetite amongst hunters. There's no appetite amongst managers or others to go past January 31st for duck seasons. Um, okay. there, there's some concern about breaking pair bonds in the rest of those things. And so I don't ever envision a day um, where we'd shoot ducks beyond January 31st. Okay. So I'm in a state where the, the zones are broke up north to south and yep. the north zone ends in December. So I guess what you're saying with the regulations, they have the ability to set them anywhere that is to end before January 31st. Correct. And so, yeah, basically all the federal government does 
all the Fish and Wildlife Service does is outlines the earliest starting date and the latest closing date. And then the state has the ability, some states use zones and splits, other states don't. But then you pick your number of days in the Mississippi Atlantic Flyway, that's 62, 60 days. On the Central Flyway, it's uh, 74. In the Pacific Flyway, it's 107. And then that gives the states the flexibility to set their seasons within those sort of broad parameters. Oh, wow. I didn't realize the variety in that. So does that have to do just with uh, the reports and the population? It really comes down to the number of hunters and harvest rate. Um, And so, you know, there are less hunters in the Pacific Flyway than there is in the Mississippi. And there's more hunters in the Mississippi than there is in the uh, Central. And so that's where the variation comes in is the predicted harvest rate based on the number of super black eagles out in the field in a given flyway. Gotcha. I lost connection for, for just a second. Um, so I, I'm just curious. Did, did you talk about um, Delta's, what Delta was asking for as far as bag limits for next year and the debate between the two? Yeah. I mean, we were, we're concerned about, the 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 proposed reduction you know we've got a lot of hunters got a lot of members lots of volunteers and there's a lot of hunters in the east and when you start talking about hunting in the atlantic flyway it's hard right i mean there's been incredible habitat loss it's highly urbanized it's hard work you look at the decline of hunting in the east it's been pretty bad and in our point was golly guys we understand you have a problem with eastern mallards you haven't been able to determine that hunting is the reason for the decline. I don't think we'll ever probably be able to assert that hunting was the decline. And why are we making hunters, why are we punishing hunters for this decline? And, and, and really what we were asking for, I think people may have misinterpreted it, but what we were asking for is just evaluate some other options. Um, you know, we wanted to do, evaluate a three three mallard limit with a one hen restriction because at the time this was being discussed last spring, what the what the what was being proposed was a two mallard limit. So the mallard hen limit wasn't going to reduce at all. When we know that what drives population growth is females, not males, and you know we wanted to evaluate if that approach might help to meet the same sort of harvest objective on females, um, but provide more opportunity for hunters and not cut the bag limit in half. So did um, the council put any kind of, um, did they give out any kind of statement as to why they didn't want to evaluate a a three duck, one hen limit, or did they just kind of move past it and, and not speak to it? Well, I think, you know, A, remember that they just did a lot of work and again, really good work for on for the benefit of duck hunters through this multi-stock thing. I think they felt like we were coming in at the eleventh hour and throwing a hitch in their giddy up. Um, and and remember, they're in control of all the data and all the modeling, right? So if they say they don't really have the time to do it, um, you know, they're not going to trust what we come up with on a bar napkin in our office. Um, and so I think the sort of, sort of response was, um, 
you know, we really don't have time to consider that right now. We're going to move ahead with this and maybe we can think about that at another time. I think my response to that might have been, well, why didn't you think of it ahead before now? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, in, you start getting in the getting in the world of modeling um, and it gets hard and it gets complicated. Um, you know, one thing I'll never understand and, and I'll take great pride in this, I think, is never understanding Bayesian statistics. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, uh, when the way they ran their models, uh, they it was not considered, um, or maybe it was considered and dismissed early. Um, and really, our focus right now in the Atlantic Flyway is to help inform the sort of gaps in information we have about why the decline is happening, how we can strengthen some of the data streams, how we're going to set population objectives in the future. To hope that that gets us to a better day for Atlantic Flyway mallard hunters. Excellent. Well, Joy, what do you think? Lightning round? Yeah, I think this sure. is a perfect time to jump to the lightning round. So the lightning round is quick questions and quick answers and helps us get to low, know a little bit more about you as a duck hunter. So let's jump perfect. right into it. What kind of shotgun do you shoot? Well, I'm a longtime Browning A5 guy that just retired my long shot A5 and I shot a Beretta A400 light last year, which about three people on the planet actually know they make one, but it's a great shotgun and I'm delighted with it. Awesome. I can definitely uh, respect the A5. Uh, I'm a A5 guy myself and I hunt my A5 that my grandpa gave me as much as I can. <laughs> yeah, that's all, that was the gun my, my father shot my whole life and I've still got a vault full of them, so. Awesome. Mine's uh not to nerd out too much, but mine's a a twenty gauge Magnum from nineteen seventy. Cool. cool. To say awesome. Jordan likes that gun's an understatement. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> uh, what kind of ammo do you shoot? Um, probably my go-to is Federal Blue Box. Uh, in number threes, if I can find them. All right. And uh, what type of or what size of shot do you shoot for ducks? If I can find them, I'm, I I love a number three. In the absence of not being able to find a number three, I'll shoot a number two. I shot and, threes for uh, big ducks for the first time this year. I was shooting federal loads, and I, I shot my shooting percentage was by far the best year this year that it's been my entire life. Yeah, there's something magic about threes. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's all in my head, but um you know i'm pretty spoiled i live up here dealing with a lot of baby dumb ducks and and i prefer to you know i prefer to shoot them close and i could probably be shooting them with almost anything but mm -hmm. my go-to is three inch number three federal blue box awesome and what size shot for geese um if i can you know most of the time uh snow geese i really like ones or twos um, and then for big honkers, double bees. All right. Favorite species of waterfowl to hunt? Um, it's changed. Um, when I was in Minnesota, it was bluebills and ringnecks. And I think my favorite duck these days, both from a hunting perspective and an eating perspective, is green winged teal. 
Mm. Cherry picking Drake green wing teal is about as much fun as I can have duck hunting. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> That's fun. And uh, what is your favorite habitat to hunt? Uh, big cattail marshes. Amen. Give me, you know, <laughs> give me a southeast wind and a sunny day. Um, you know, five to 10 mile an hour wind. Uh, my wife has even figured out now why sometimes the Devneys go to mass on Saturday nights, because that means there's probably <laughs> going to be a Southeast wind and clear skies on Sunday morning. So that's, and there's nothing better than shooting in those marshes, shoot a few teal early and then have that mallard back flight a little later in the morning and have them staring into that sun. And I'm nestled in the cattails in a small duck boat with my dog on the front of it. Awesome. What kind of dog do you have? I got a three and a half year old black lab male, uh, bull cans tag Parnell. Uh, he's the third dog I've owned myself. Um, and the only thing I do when I'm not working or trying to be a better dad and husband, uh, is train retrievers. So we're, uh, going to try to put his, uh, HRC, put an HRCH on him this year. Uh, also going to try to finish out his AKC senior, um, British dog, hundred percent trained on the British method, never had any collar on him. And all amateur trained amateur handled where'd you get where'd you get the dog from came out of a kennel called british labradorscott.com which used to be queensland kennels which is just east of st paul uh dennis anderson who's a long time minneapolis star and tribune writer has been importing british blood since the 70s and got quite a quite a special thing going on and this is my second dog out of that kennel We've had Barton Ramsey from Southern Oak Kennels on um, South. And then, uh, Jordan, what was the guy's name from Southern Oak Kennels North? Do you remember what his name was we had him on? Oh, it's slipping my mind right now. Anyway, they're, they're important British dogs as well. Um, I don't know if you're familiar, familiar with that name. but Yeah, they're, very they're familiar. In fact, guys in our office, one of the guys in our office just brought three puppies back from there this week, I think on Monday. Man, I would love to have one of those dogs, but that price tag, whew, that's a big one. Well, when you amortize it over 12 years, it doesn't feel so bad. Yeah. I've got an 11-year-old Yellow Lab, my, my second dog, and I'm just um, in the market for my third one. Um, I would love to have one of those British, but in Nebraska, there's a lot of good. I think it's UKC. There's AKC and then UKC. Is that is that correct as far as the field it's, trial it, circuit? It's AKC and eight, the UKC is the registry. The tests are run under the hunting retriever club. And I, I, we started a HRC club here. I'm an HRC judge. That's where I spend most of my hunt test time. Although I, I'm going to put an AKC senior test senior title on this dog too. Cause I, I found that I enjoy the AKC senior test as well. And I'm, I don't want to get off topic too much, but AKC is a little bit more stringent. Is that correct? Um, yeah, when you start running HRC finish tests, they're pretty stringent too. Um, okay. difference between AKC and HRC, the big one is HRC really wants to put the hunt and hunt test. Um, you've got to handle a shotgun, um, with pop arounds in it. So you're shouldering, shouldering and firing an actual firearm. Um, there's no noise in the field when you get to the upper levels. Um, 
there's some differences. They're both fun games. NAR is also a great game. Um, but the, I think the most important thing out of all of it is just we're, we're, I think as handlers, we're spending way more time with our dogs. And, you know, my first dog was a great natural retriever. He was wild as hell. My second dog, we got in the hunt test game late. It made him a better dog. And now I'm training my third and learning all the mistakes I've made with the previous two and making with this one. And you just, you end up having a much better finished product because you're training every day and you're running them against the best of the best. Yeah. There are, there are a lot of good HRC breeders in Nebraska. And I think that's where I'm trying to get my dog out. I'm in Kansas. So that's where I'm looking right now for my, for my next buck. Yep. And there's great breeders and trainers in Nebraska. Awesome. Sorry, Jordan. I got talking to quick round. I, got... <laughs> I, I knew <laughs> as soon as round. I mentioned uh, dogs that it was all over <laughs> with your current with your current mindset. But yeah, yeah, I'm getting a pup here real soon. <laughs> all righty. Well, I think that just about wraps it up. I uh, really appreciate you coming on tonight, John. Go ahead and let people know uh, where they can find you or where uh, they can find Delta Waterfowl. Yep. Uh... Check us out on the web at www.deltawaterfall.org. Also, our Facebook page is a great way to get sort of regular updates. We're doing a really good job of posting new, fresh content there all the time. And we're here in Bismarck. You want to talk ducks and duck hunting, give us a call. Awesome. All right, folks, that's all we got for tonight. We really appreciate you guys tuning in week out and week in listening to the podcast. I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles, Elliot from Freelance Duck Hunting, Duck Hunting, and John from Delta Waterfowl, and we'll see you guys next time.